0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Locked On Suns, part of Locked On Podcast. And our today, is always, I'm your host, Evan Sarah, Joel, my co-host, Brendan Clean, Both are for SB Nation's Bright Side of the Sun. You can follow me on Twitter, at e You can follow Brendan on Twitter, at clean 14 We're coming back with you with our fourth and final installment of the season with our stock reports. So I know usually it's, these are pretty in-depth, so we're going to bring our final installment for you today, which is actually going to feature a little less people on here because not only did Devin Booker and TJ Warren barely play in this stretch, they only played three games each, but... Alfred Payton was on the last stock Poor, He's pretty much off the team now. It looks like the intentions are not going to even keep him in the offseason. So we're going to mainly focus on the three big guys from the stretch, and that was Josh Jackson, Dragon Bender, and Marquis Chris. And then we'll touch a little bit on the bench guys a little bit. But we're going to start off with Josh Jackson here, and I think his, his is really interesting because he broke out over these final 16 games. So I wouldn't say broke out, but his, his box number stats look pretty good to me. He's averaging 20.6 points, 5.5 rebounds, 2.7 assists, 1.9 steals. But he's also doing it in a very high usage amount, thirty-one percent, and that I think that ranks in the top ten over that over that final stretch of games. So, how do you purse through these numbers, Brian, As far as he's such a high usage guy right now over the final stretch, and I never thought I'd say that six months ago.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's the thing we've been really having to work through this entire stretch. Like you know, obviously being excited about his development because. While he's done it inefficiently, and that's not always how you like to you know, go through the season. Um, sometimes those extra opportunities aren't always beneficial if they turn into bad shots or just playing too many shots that, that hurts the team, of course. But, um, you know, at the same time, Jackson really had to, in a way, step into that role. There wasn't anyone else, as we'll talk about. I think out of this stretch, Booker and Warren, both played four or five games so yeah it's it's difficult to really sort through where he maybe stepped over the line of doing a little too much and playing outside of himself and how much of it was uh, just the conditions around him on the team where there was no other player that kind of had the ability or confidence to step forward and be that be that player so I mean yeah 30.5 usage uh, over these last... I actually couldn't get the exact number for the specific stretch, but that that's for the last 15 games, is a 30.5 usage rate, and that kind of backs up what we saw game to game. That guy just... He went out and, and took as many shots as it was going to need to keep the team in it. Most of the time, he wasn't successful with that second part, but um, I think there's still some valuable stuff to pull out of it.
0: For sure, and looking at his minutes, he averaged 32.8 minutes over the stretch. He took 18.4 field goal attempts, shot 43.1%, but The shooting splits is what I want to touch on a little bit more. He was 25.6% on threes, 0.8 out of of three field goal attempts from three. And he also shot 69.3% from the free throw line, which is a little bit better than it usually was through the entire season. So what's your thoughts on Jackson's shot development? Because I feel like I posted this comp on Twitter earlier today because they almost were exactly identical over the last five weeks of the season. But Josh Jackson played a lot like a Paul George, but like almost a poor man's Paul George because he doesn't have that shot yet. But that defensive instincts are really starting to show through. And, If he can take a little bit of progress on a shot, I feel like it could go a long way towards the next season. So, what's your thoughts moving forward, at least on Jackson's shot and his development?
1: Jackson, I mean, the numbers that I got from him are maybe, I don't know. I'm a little bit more worried, I think. I do think I lean a little bit more toward the fact that his role, like I said in yesterday's podcast, I think, talking about Doncic um, and just the draft in general, kind of how you build a team around Jackson, I think – you know, this role we saw him in the last 15, 20 games was not necessarily, at least in this part of his career, not how he's going to be most valuable to a team. So I think while he he's able to put up the numbers and even look like on the court some of these really dynamic wings, um, he doesn't have the skills to really back that up. Um, I think... One one uh, statistical category where he kind of flashed some improvement that has me a little bit more optimistic is his finishing. So he shot fifty eight percent within five feet uh, over the last month of the season. This stretch we're talking about, which is two percent better than his overall mark for the season, and he was really one of the Suns' worst finishers all year. So to see that uptick, uh, it, and it is just two percent, but that's still pretty marked for somebody who was so bad uh, getting around guys and, and making shots within that range early in the season so that has me a little bit optimistic I think the jump shooting is still just so far from where it needs to be
0: yeah I'm glad you brought that because looking at his free throw numbers over this final stretch it's 5.8 but really since January it's been around six or so so do you feel like this is kind of a big thing to talk about with Jackson as far as he's realizing that he's such a fast guy on the wing that he's able to get to the get to the rim at such a fast pace. And so often that, that six free throw attempt mark could really be his average next season.
1: I, I think it's, it's definitely closer to where he'll be and where he has to be. And, you know, even when you talk to him um, early in the season, or not early in the season, earlier in the season, and he was talking about passing being really important for him, I think you kind of see what he's trying to do to transform his game without the jumper so he wants to become a better passer so that he has defenses have to stay honest against him and um, that driving is going to be the second thing where even if teams are playing off of him his ability to still get to the rim and be an effective player is going to be really important
0: yeah and i guess i wanted to pivot over to his defense too because i feel like that's something that a lot of fans and especially media members were thinking that was gonna be a big strength of his earlier in the season and it really didn't show that much his offense probably flashed a lot more than we thought of would this season compared to his defense but Obviously, it's probably going to depend on what coach and gets into him because I feel like if Mike Boone was a guy's handle on that, I feel like that's very good for his development on the defensive end. But what did you see from his rookie season as far as his defense? Because I feel like, I don't know if it's just a Suns thing or an effort thing with the Suns, but I feel like he didn't flash as much as he could have.
1: Yeah, so I went in and looked. Um, Christian Narsu, who writes for the Now on Calculus, created a little database where you can go in and search – by um, offensive real plus minus usage and time of possession um, to kind of sort through which player on which team guarded kind of the most dominant offensive creator on the other team. And so uh, I you can, at least looking through it for the first time this morning, wasn't able to sort through to see just the stretch we were talking about today, but I was interested just because um, we see Jackson take that opportunity and guard some of those high-level players on other teams quite a bit. But when you go in and look, actually, Devin Booker, over the course of the full season, did it a lot more. And and maybe part of that is that um, early in the season, Jackson clearly wasn't trusted to do that and, and wasn't even getting consistent playing time, as he kind of proved himself. But... Um, it is interesting to see that where Jackson, maybe that the numbers don't back up kind of the role we, we saw him playing. And it was really just in small stretches that he was doing that. So um, I, I clearly don't think as a rookie we expected him to be there. I think those stretches where we did see him do it are still important and impressive. But um, I, I don't know. Going forward, it's, it's really going to be a matter of filling out his body to where he can defend those guys consistently.
0: And I'm glad with filling out the body. That's one thing you touched on the podcast. I Me, mean, who's he was going to really focus on the summer hit the weights a lot. Do you feel like he's a guy I know pre draft one thought he could guard one through four. Do you still feel that way like two or three years down the line that he's a guy that could really switch between one through four, even spot five like we saw against Memphis earlier this season where he had really the entire fourth quarter against Marcus Gasol?
1: I sort of think that, at least from what I've seen right now this year, I, I don't imagine that he's going to be able to guard fours he didn't really have success doing that consistently. He, he was forced into it based on different lineups that Triano had to play to maximize the offense. I think that was a big part of it where if you're just grasping for straws, trying to get the best spacing possible, sometimes for the Suns that meant having lesser defensive players and so Jackson was having to cover up for that and even he's not really capable of doing that so I think it was really a matter of necessity with those situations I don't imagine uh, next season if there's more talent around him better defense in front court especially that he'll be asked to do that I liked a lot better when he was defending smaller players Um, we saw him be pretty impressive against James Harden and and players like that Um, obviously not able to lock those guys down as a rookie but um, he has quick hands. He can move his feet well, backpedaling, flipping his hips, um, that kind of stuff you look for against drivers rather than the, the strength and footwork you ask for if you're Guarding the So I think at this point in his development, it's much more likely he'll be effective against smaller players, which bodes well, too, because I think while I just said Booker more often guarded the better offensive players on the opposing team, I think you'd like that number to balance out a little bit next year as Jackson starts to develop and he can cover a little bit more for the deficiencies Booker has on that end.
0: I was kind of surprised looking at some hustle stats on the NBA advance page, and it looks like Jackson's deflections over the stretch and really over the entire season was near around two and a half. And the elite guys like Paul George and Giannis are about half or one full deflection ahead of them. So do you feel like – I know during the pre-draft process we all saw Jackson with very active hands, probably very good odds. He averaged around one to two steals throughout his career. But are you kind of surprised with how active he is, at least defensively? And do you feel like, like you mentioned earlier in your statement, if a good coach gets his hands on him, I feel like that could really change him pretty fast?
1: Yeah, I mean, I kind of think that coaching maybe doesn't even – have to do much with it, I think really it's going to come down to, I think a big part of the, you know, we're going we've got, to, we've gotten into this every time we've broken these players down for this fourth time this season, and um, it'll be the same case for the other two guys we're going to talk about today. Part of, I think more than, you know, maybe coaching problems or even talent problems in, in a way, like lack of really talented players across and up and down the roster, is just... A, an inability for between health and um, inconsistency for players to, to find a definitive role. I think the fact that we saw Josh Jackson defend everybody from Mark Gasol to James Harden as a rookie, like I was saying before, wasn't a matter of him being ready or capable or even effective doing that. It was a matter of, well, what in the world do we do with this team to try to be competitive in games? So I think, um, you know, Jackson is going to be that type of physical guy where he's going to be able to play the passing lanes and and do that kind of stuff we think of with the best wing defenders. If he just has better a more simple, simple simplified role and better players around him. So if there's a rim protector in place for the majority of every game next year, he's not going to have to do any of the crazy stuff he was doing guarding players a foot taller than him next year or anything like that. He's going to be able to, to really just dial in, be that Andre Roberson Victor Oladipo, Paul George type of, of wing defender. And I think he's going to be pretty effective if he can continue to develop like he has.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. And I feel like next year is going to be a huge step in Jack's development. <laughs> if he can get that shot to get a lot better. And I feel like the defense is going to slowly come along with better roster around him, like you mentioned there. So for overall grades, Brendan, what do you feel like Jackson deserves for this final stretch?
1: I actually had one more point with him, too. It's not like a statistical thing, but... Um, just to give kind of a final update, something we've been monitoring all year in this space is that uh, it doesn't look like it, it seems like an uphill battle for him at this point, even to make the all rookie second team. I've been kind of following the ballots here and there. I know Zach Lowe did not have him on Ben Gulliver, I believe, did not either. Same thing. Uh, a lot of the national writers who I respect quite a bit did not put him on even the all rookie second team probably because of his really, really rough first half. So that might be disappointing for Suns fans after we saw him do some impressive stuff late in the season. But, you know, there were contributors for playoff teams on for a lot of rookies this year, so that is maybe just the reality of, of it. But I, my grade is, is probably, I would go, I think, a B- minus for him. I think he outperformed expectations but didn't really do enough to overcome the weaknesses he had to really boost him up to like an A where it really I think a lot of the productivity just came from added opportunity
0: yeah you bring up a good point there I'm actually going to stay in the B realm I'm going to go a little bit higher than you with a B plus I feel like we saw development especially passing wise I know the turnovers were a little bit of a mess near the end there but he seemed to really find his niche as far as driving and going to the rim at a constant rate his foul his fouls went way up as far as getting to the line and his jump shot as we know is going to take a little bit of time and Probably more longer than I expected, but I think it's going to pay off in, in spades eventually with the amount of usage you got over this last final stretch. But I'm glad you brought the rookie part there because I was going to ask you about that before we moved on. But do you feel like Kyle Kuzma and like those kind of guys? I know all rookies, second team, first team. Those there's a lot of wings in that category. So do you feel like maybe Josh Jackson, like he's su- supremely com- confident and motivated person? Do you feel like this might motivate him heading into the summer if he doesn't make any of those all rookie teams?
1: I think it definitely. Will just hearing kind of how driven he already was talking to you in that, in that podcast episode and um, just his willingness to learn and add add skill and, and practice throughout the year has been important. Um, I mean you hear that kind of stuff from most rookies but especially someone who we saw struggle it, it clearly didn't affect him in a really negative way where he got down on himself I think he took even his own struggles as motivation so to me I, I would think being the number four overall pick and seeing somebody like Kuzma, who I think was the 27th pick um, playing so well, getting so much respect um, from national media and whatnot that, you know, he's going to, I think he'll probably get better either way. But I I do think that it, it would, it would at least affect me. I think to see those guys get so much more respect after the improvements that Jackson made this year.
0: For sure. I feel like Jackson's really kind of stepped into his number two role behind Booker, and it's been really fun to watch, especially even though he hasn't been playing. The extra usage has been, even though, a kind of a crutch in his his kind of armor, because I know the extra opportunity allows more mistakes, but I feel like he's going to grow exponentially from those. So we're going to move on to a pretty controversial guy in the timeline right now. That's Dragan Bender, and I feel like we should touch on him before Marquise Chris, because I feel like i feel like bender probably took less strides than chris did over the final stretch and i want to get your thoughts on that first do you feel like bender or chris is the one that's probably on the the weakest link right now from the last stretch
1: i mean judging it just from the last stretch i think chris looked a lot better um i think though looking into the data a little bit it wasn't as demonstrative as, as you might think having watched the games it Um, kind of balanced out my impressions of each player going into the numbers because um, Bender really sort of just did what he had been doing for the most part the whole season um, over the last stretch of games and Chris did improve but I think a lot of that was what we were seeing as far as energy and, and confidence and those types of things rather than like a real dominant productive month and a half
0: yeah, that's true. And I guess with Bender, I wanted to ask you further on just the overall value with him because I've seen a lot of like smart draft, not drafting guys, but smart national riders kind of pick up on the Bender bandwagon and kind of stay with him because they see the value in a guy at seven foot one. He can shoot 35% from three over the stretch. He only shot 32.9. But if you have a guy that's only 20 years old shooting above 35% from three, just how valuable is that? Cause I feel like Suns fans are kind of undervaluing the aspect that Bender and how good he could be on a, actually a good team.
1: I, I do. I, I think that it's tough because a player like that, being a rookie, being a, you know, really effectively still a rookie this year, considering the amount of minutes. Um, I think, like you had started to, to ask Triano, be a little curious about, you know, that stretch where we saw him, maybe the middle of this span that we're discussing right now, he kind of hit a wall and really was not doing much of anything. We were doing those crazy, like, what well, when was the last time a player played this many minutes and took this few shots and and a lot of the time he didn't even make a single shot in a game that's kind of insane really when you think about it but at the same time he was always going to be like a really high level role player even as the number four pick I think that was really the best case scenario for him is to be like a one of the better role players in the league never going to be a take the ball into the post and bully players, that's not his style. So he's going to look a lot better on a good team, but there's still worry signs for sure this this stretch. I mean, so he led the team in minutes, but only had a 13.3% usage. Even an average usage would be 20 because there's five players on the court at any given time. So if you're taking up ideally one-fifth of those, you have a 20% usage. It's not always how it actually balances out, but it's certainly like guys like Booker are going to make up more than their share, and and that'll affect the other players, but 13.3 is really damaging when you have the talent to be a little more effective than that, scoring the ball when you're seven feet tall and everything, but he did have three dunks and eight driving layups. I, I went in and looked, so those... I couldn't even tell you if I saw all 11 of those. It seemed like it was maybe two, but I guess that's a positive thing to take away that, especially at that very tail end of the season, I think we saw him be a little more aggressive, just trying to drive, even if it didn't work out.
0: Now, I wonder going into the next offseason, d- we don't know yet if Bender or Chris will be on next year's roster, but just assume both are in this scenario. Do you think Bender. Everyone knows that kind of his teammates were icing him out, at least from what we could see in the last month or so of the season. He barely was getting up shots. And even Josh Jackson, I think, took like 12 shots in the first quarter one night just because he wasn't really passing around to anyone else in the, on the floor because they're all non-shooters. So do you feel like next year that Bender's a guy that he's going to have to just get out of his comfort zone and be aggressive just to save his career almost? Because I feel like – I know he's going to be a very valuable role player, but if you're only taking two or three shots in 35 minutes, that's just not going to fly with teammates.
1: Yeah, it definitely isn't. And, you know, even from the coaching staff, we heard that where there was a lot of frustration that Bender was getting open looks or having driving lanes, getting the ball in a good position and really not doing much with that. I think, you know, really one of the problems, too, with the lack of confidence driving and that the defense is so aware of that um, is that, you can't. You know, one of his best skills even right now is his passing. And so... When he's not driving the ball and looking to, to be aggressive going to the rim, then a lot of the open openings that, that get created from doing that within the offense where you're going to kick to a shooter on the weak side when that guy's man rolls to try and protect the rim, that, that's the defense doesn't respond or react to when he's moving toward the hoop because they're not afraid of that as a threat whatsoever, and they have no reason to be. Um, he shot 18 of 30 within five feet. Which is barely over fifty percent, and again, seven feet tall. I mean, even just catching the ball there, and you know, carving out a position and, and laying it in against you know, he's playing against backups and, and late in the season, playing against ten-day guys, and and you know, who knows who's on the court at that point in the season. He still wasn't able to make the most of that. So, it's it's definitely a problem he needs to work out, and it's not as simple as you know, being changing his mindset he really needs to become better at doing those kinds of things because we don't even see him use those skills or or physicality at all
0: yeah to that i wanted to add a little bit more onto that point because it's really interesting with a guy that's so young i know kevin o'connor i listened to the ringer podcast with him a lot with jonathan sharks on draft class they still talk about drug and bender a little bit as far as a case study with being like you need to be patient with him just wait till he's 24 or 25 but do the sons right now with how impatient it seems like the front office is right now and especially some of the players too do you feel like a guy like bender is someone they can afford the wait on
1: i think they can I, I wouldn't say that the front office is impatient necessarily i think that it would be better to characterize them as just having a, an understanding of the position that they're in this summer and a yeah. little bit of a strength compared to the rest rest of the league especially the the worst teams in the league they're in a much better position to add talent so i think you know they can afford to add talent with other assets outside of Bender. And then like we're talking about, if he, if they truly believe that he's somebody like we believe would look better next to talented players, even another guy in the front court maybe playing a four or having the versatility to kind of slide around on defense rather than playing the five so much, um, then maybe that that's something that they look into where they're going to be able to use picks and other players to acquire the talent and then see how Bender looks in that situation. But at the same time, You know, there is the potential if you deal someone else and acquire a player and Bender doesn't work out with more talent around him and it's still four years into his career or something and and you're not happy with what you're seeing, then, you know, you're looking at Marquis Chris or TJ Warren and thinking, well, we we could have had that and, and we picked this guy. So it's a tough decision because of how little you really know about Bender at this point. But I still think, you know, he didn't ruin his potential this year by any means.
0: For sure, and I guess looking at Marquis Chris's stretch real quick, I'm not we're not gonna touch on just yet. But looking at his three point percentage, he shot only twenty percent from three compared to Bender, who was thirty two point nine. So, do you feel like right now, if they both stay together at least for one more season, that Bender's kind of solidifying himself as a stretch four, while Chris should focus really more on inside and be a small ball file, almost like a Tristan Thompson kind of guy.
1: Yeah, I think maybe defensively, Chris has that type of role, like Thompson does, or his value is going to maybe be his ability to switch if he continues to get better at that and block shots. I think Bender. Um, it's tough to really know what what the best player to pair him with is because you look at guys like him around the league. Um, you know, Nikola Jokic, another player who whose defense really isn't the strength there, but he even has much. A much bigger frame where he's at least going to be able to get in the way of drivers um Boris Diaw maybe another kind of a similar example although um you know he wasn't really a switchable defender and, and the Spurs didn't really use him that way but you know I mean just like a, a solid I think you know Suns fans have been talking about Derek Favors a lot as somebody that they're excited about I think I'm a little depending on the price I think that could make sense I think he's somebody who you could put next to bender and that might work um but I, it's tough to really know i i, I do think that he's not going to be somebody who you can trust at the five because his rim protection is not that good at least at this point in his career
0: yeah do you feel like with rim protection i know it's kind of a, a like a make or miss kind of thing as far as scouting and viewing yeah. it goes but with a guy that's played about 100 plus games in Dragon bender and looking at other successful or non-successful rim protectors around our league do you feel like that's a thing that takes time or do you feel like that's an immediate thing that should translate
1: I think especially for somebody who's not an athlete like, you know, Serge Ibaka, Anthony Davis, those guys came into the league able to block shots out of the top of their arc just swiping um, from the weak side. That's not really ever going to be what Bender is able to do. But I I, I looked and um, this stretch we're we're discussing, he actually – And it's it's not always easy to trust the defensive field goal percentage, especially for somebody like Bender who does defend on the perimeter from time to time. Um, There's it's just hard to really calculate who was responsible for the guy who took the shot and whether it was really even a a defensible shot by Bender in these situations. But it was at 52.3 percent within five feet. This these 20 or 15, 16 games. Um, which is 12% better than the Suns' average over the length of the season, and I believe I've been looking at that number every quarter, and I believe that one is the best that Bender's had over any stretch. So, any any played the most minutes, like I said, of anybody on the team. So, I mean, it, it might not be pretty, but you know, sometimes. I think, you know, being big, knowing where to be, knowing how to rotate like he does, it is effective. So I think there is still some potential that he could eventually fill that role. I just think it's, it is it is going to come come along a lot slower than some other players.
0: Yeah, I have a feeling that his defense will probably round out not for another two or three years, and that's fine with the Suns, it feels like, because they have, like we mentioned, a top pick in the draft. They have ample cast space, so if they need Bender to be a bench guy next year and develop, then they'll surely probably be fine with that. But any... Any more takeaways as far as Dragon Bender in this final stretch you want to touch on before our grade?
1: No, what's your grade?
0: Um, for me, I'd probably go about a... I'm between a B- and a C- right now for him, because I know that there's, ver- there's some really bad moments. I'm probably just going to go with a C plus. He had some really bad moments, like really bad. He shot just 30, 30 minutes. He barely had any sort of shot attempts. He was getting iced out a lot, but like you mentioned there, he sort of convinced me at the end there as far as his defense and how he looked there. I know, like you mentioned, it was mostly on the perimeter, but a guy that can switch and be valuable like that, even though we didn't see it that much in positive stretches, I feel like you can't really define him that much when his role is still kind of dicey, how it is with Phoenix, and especially how Jay Tron used him. And even if you have to factor in Marquis Chris as well, it's like they're getting him a lot more involved later in the season. So I'm going to give him a C plus. What do you think?
1: I think I actually have minus. A, a C-. I think a lot of... I don't know. I, I think what he did, the final stretch, wasn't as good as he was. At other points in the season and while, you know, he still produced statistically and I think it was a big deal for him to handle that minutes load, um, not get injured, not really become that much less effective in his role um, was important. But at the same time, um, you would have liked that if he's getting all those minutes, there's less talent around him that he took a little bit more of a center piece of the team away from Josh Jackson away from um, even like Tyler Uless players like that and, and really put his his foot forward. But, you know, uh, kind of a, a little bit of an average grade, I think, but just a little worse than average. So I'll go that C-. minus.
0: Before we jump into Marquise, Chris, I wanted to ask the main question I wanted to get out today. And that's just your thoughts overall on both Bender and Chris. If they had to just pick one right now, who would you pick?
1: It's still Bender for me. I think – You know, Chris, I think what was so exciting about him, which I guess we can just get into him, is that last stretch, it just was such a revelation compared with the third quarter, I guess you could call it. I mean, we didn't even talk about him in that third quarter because he was injured and ineffective and complaining a little bit to the media, just expressing frustration, I guess is a better way to put it, to Scott Bordeaux and – in interviews he was giving so to see him come from that point to this point where he really just got back to normal in a way um was exciting and impressive because it really looked you know when you talk about him being an asset somebody you might be able to flip in a Kimball Walker trade or to trade up and take another player in the lottery some of these high hopes that the team might have for themselves this summer it looked about ruined as far as Chris being a part of any of that from a value standpoint if he had continued down that, that path that he was on around January, February. So to me, it was really just a matter of getting back to normal for him. It really wasn't like he improved from the first half of the season or from his rookie season this year and looked like a different player. It was really just, thank heavens that he's not a sunken cost like he looked to be.
0: For sure. And I guess just to dive into the box score numbers real quick, you averaged 24 and a half minutes over the stretch and averaged 11.3 points, 7.4 rebounds, one assist, 0.8 steals and 0.9 blocks on 47.2, 20 and 70.2 shooting splits. So we can just dive right into it. Chris, what stood out to you, at least from a positive perspective? And I know the energy was a big thing and really getting back to normal, but do you feel like the shooting percentage for me, I feel like it's one thing that really jumped out to me, because I know it's usually been low for most of the season.
1: Yeah, he was. He actually shot thirty percent, thirty-one percent from three in March, um, a fifty-five percent true shooting percentage in March, and that contributed helped him get to a negative three net rating, which um, much higher than he had been throughout the season. Um, I think you know you can look. He's always been one of those guys for the Suns that's had the most like on-off value. The team always seems to be a little better when he's on the court. He's, he most of the time leads the team in plus minus, except for mostly you know, when Jared Dudley plays, that changes. Um, it's always been a little bit difficult to understand why that's the case. I think he spaces the floor better than some of the options at center, um, and I think you know his rebounding what has typically been better than Bender's, so some of those little things that you don't necessarily think about so much, I think, play in his favor, but... Like I said, I I really think those numbers, while they're exciting and um, kind of show what his role can be a little bit better, I don't think that they're really that much better than they were in say like November December of this year.
0: Do you think mainly it was just him? I know he touched on a Media Day and he said that it kind of did play a big factor. Do you think the hip injury in January really kind of threw a wrench in Chris's season because he didn't he was really playing how he was in April and January and he had a big game against the Atlanta Hawks, but. I think one or two games after that he hurt his hip and then against OKC, and then he really was just up and down ever since then.
1: I do. I mean, it, it's not a coincidence. I don't think that that injury coincided with the point in the season where he got really frustrated. Um, I think the problem there became his recovery. It just didn't seem like that Tough of an injury, as far as you know. Even when he was given the opportunity to talk, he never really referenced injury. He really referenced his own mindset, the opportunities he was being given, the role he was being asked to play. You know, when Scott talked to him and wrote a couple articles, it wasn't Chris is talking about. You know, I'm really struggling to to recover. My body's not doing what I want it to do because this hip is affecting my ability to move and 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 jump and things like that. it. It was it was all mindset so that that was part of why it was tough to really draw the line there for me but i also don't think that it's a coincidence that those two things happen at the same time
0: yeah and i definitely think that with chris it's just all about consistency with him and really almost like drawing bender it's confidence because when he wasn't in the starting lineup it was kind of disturbing how he didn't play at a good rate and then once he went back in the starting lineup he kind of, he kind of did play well again so what's your thoughts on chris like from a mindset standpoint do you feel like earl watson especially when we touched on it in the last episode but do you think Earl Watson negatively played a factor really mainly on Marquise Chris to give him like sort of some sort of confidence that he's already a starter in this league even though he didn't prove anything?
1: I, I do think that, that Chris was one of the bigger case studies, I guess you could say, in the damage that Watson did to some of the guys' confidence um, building them up a little bit too much when it wasn't really apparent that they were Going to play up to that level at all, and I don't think Chris has. But um, I guess the question that I'm kind of thinking about now, and we haven't really seen a similar situation in in the league, kind of looking at the draft the last five, 10 years, where a rebuilding tank type of team went and took two players at the same position in the top eight, top 10. Um, do you think that that was a mistake on the Sun's part? I think obviously there was a and maybe there still is that those two guys can play together or could play together um, they had a little bit of different skill sets but we talk about both of them needing that confidence do you think that that, that part of the problem there is having that competition built in from the minute that they stepped foot in the NBA and had to compete against one another and develop in the shadow of one another and, and try to make it fit next to each other even if that's not really ideal for either one of them
0: yeah I really think that's the case as well I think really it was just two guys that were nineteen years old, Bender was eighteen and they were immediately thrown into a competition between one one really one one versus the other because Tyson Chandler was the starting center. Alex Lynn was already there. Alan Williams was in camp already. He was already proving himself. So really the center pitch was already filled up and they already had to decide, hey, Marquise Chris, Dragon Bender, who who's the one of these guys and it seemed like right from the jump that Earl Watson preferred Marquise Chris and really put Bender not in a doghouse, so to say, but didn't allow him any sort of opportunity at this and the front court, you put him at at small forward at seven foot one, which is kind of confusing when looking back on it. But really I just think you, you I think you hit a run right the head, Brent. I think it was just a confidence thing as far as the Chris and Bender. And I think Chris kinda of took it the positive way with the Watson while Bender took the negative way. And now you're seeing the prices paid for with Jay Tround this season. So I think you're running the money there. So what what do you think about with Marquise Chris and moving forward with him, just was there anything from a negative standpoint that stood out to you from this Because I know There were a lot of positives with him, but the negatives for me continue to stand, out, especially from his IQ standpoint. I know it was improved, but I saw so many times in games where he just left the guy in the corner just ball watching, and that next time down, he would immediately do it again, and it would just be a wide open three that he he would be allowing every single time.
1: Yeah, I would say that the inconsistency, and I don't necessarily put it on Triano. I think he was, at least when we would discuss it with him, pretty clear about whose responsibility it was. And when they felt comfortable switching, I would I would ask him any time I saw Chris or Bender switch screens for a long period of time when I was at a game, I would ask him, um, you know, what the thinking was. And he's very clear about when they did it, what matchups they looked to attack. Uh, etc and Chris did not seem always clear on what the responsibilities were there he would call switches when the ball when the man defending the ball handler wasn't ready for them and that would leave an open drive to the rim pretty often I think that's part of the reason that sometimes the same like you were saying that there were shooters left open is he thought he was corralling the ball handler or or you know attaching to the ball going to the rim tagging the the driver there but then there would be a shooter wide open um, that he left. I think that those problems, like you're saying, are a matter of knowing the scattering report, knowing the system, knowing um, who he's on the court with, because that was a big thing Triana would talk about, is it really is a matter of personnel from the Suns' point of view, because not everybody on the team was capable of making those those switches successful. And then I think um, finishing for him, he should be a lot better at finishing that's, I talk about it all the time. This team was miserable finishing around the rim this year. He shot 61% at the rim this stretch, um, which is worse than his season mark, actually. Um, he With how much athleticism he has, with his uh, strength and, and bulk he's put on, and his ability to finish through contact a little better than he did last year, he should be much higher than that. He should be leading the team, honestly, especially with Tyson Chandler not in over this stretch. Um, and he, he didn't do that. He didn't wasn't able to really make a mark that way. Catching a doing that kind of stuff, really just never has become a, a focal point of the Suns' offense because he's been so inconsistent with it.
0: I went back and watched some of Chris's highlights of his rookie year, and I went back and watched some of the games this year, really just dialing in on watching him mainly. And I went back and saw that he really hasn't developed any sort of post moves at all, really outside just maybe one extra move that he's added to his bag. But is that kind of worrisome to you that – he really hasn't developed any sort of post moves at all. He's been a guy who really just sells for the perimeter jumper and he isn't good at it.
1: Yeah, he, he's not he's not an interior player at this point at all. And I think part of the problem there too is like uh, to go back to some of the the reads that he's not really comfortable making. That that translates on offense too, because he he's not really a passer whatsoever. I think that's that King's game, not to go back to it. I talk about it all the time when I talk about Chris because For 48 minutes that night, it looked like that guy was had figured a lot of things out. Where the passing, especially, you know, maybe he's not going to be a guy who's at the elbow facing up. That maybe was how he was built coming out of college with the athleticism he had. I don't think that's the type of player he's going to be anytime soon, but. You know, if he, Even if he's just going to be a screen-and-roll player, there's still value there, especially if you can make passes. And in that Kings game, he was making passes at the weak side corner, and the Kings just didn't know how to react because that's not something he'd ever shown, and their defense is not that great. But he's really never done that since. I think that Hawks game you mentioned, he showed, he, he flashed some, some of those similar passes in those four-on-three situations, but that's not a consistent part of the game either. So he really has a lot of ground to cover developing on the offense and just becoming a more aware player of not only when he has an open shot, but what the the offense and defense are doing around him to create open shots for his teammates, take up space, finish, um, really just be a more productive and valuable player for the offense rather than just, you know, getting up shots or taking shots when they're open.
0: We talk about a guy who's usually smart on the floor with his wreath and all that, and that's Dragan Bender, but the opposite with Marquise Chris and do you feel like a coach like, I know the coaching search is in full swing right now. Mike Holzer might be the higher next 24 to 48 hours, or they could go with a guy like Jay Triano or Frank Vogel, et cetera. But do you feel like one of those coaches could really tap into Marquise Chris's untapped potential? Or do you feel like Chris is kind of a sunken cost at this point and his value is not going to be really that high?
1: No, I definitely don't think it's a, a sunken cost. I think to to go back to what I was saying with Jackson about role, um, I think if if Chris is – Put in a situation where he's where he knows exactly what he needs to be doing. I think probably switching with him at this point, at least early next season in, in training camp, that's not something that he should be asked to do. He really was ineffective doing that completely. That should be exclusively for Bender, um, Jackson, guys who can handle that. Chris should be really just settling around the rim, um, weak side rim protection, that kind of stuff that he has shown himself to be effective at, and he's even become a better post defender, I think. And then offensively, I think he's really just going to be best screening, popping, drive, uh, rolling. If he's put in a position where he has a more consistent rotation and a consistent system around him, I think he could still be a very effective player um, if he can put it together consistently. But um, I, I don't know. I maybe that, maybe that part of it is what never quite comes around with him. But I do think there's still plenty of potential for it to happen.
0: Now, one more point I wanted to hit on with, Chris, and you can add in anything else you want to as well, Brendan. but with his three-point percentage, he took two and a half threes over the stretch, and he, like I mentioned, was 20% on those. So do you feel like, I'm glad you hit on it there in your answer, but with Marquis Chris, do you feel like he's a guy that should, that should really just cut that out of his game and really focus more on just exclusively at the, at the rim offense?
1: I think he, he, could, do a, he could be a, a pretty effective pick-and-pop player um, if he can get his footwork there. I actually think the footwork's, pretty okay he kind of has that tango with the ball handler down pretty well Um, I think the problem comes in when it's and Earl Watson did this a lot when he would involve Bledsoe and Booker in screen actions with Chandler and and Chris would just be in the corner that that never made sense to me and even when Triano would do that sometimes this year I understand he can make that shot, and he did it pretty effectively. I'd actually be interested to go back and see just his corner three-point percentage over the past two years, because I'm sure it's higher than his normal. But that that's not a role that really makes sense for him, because he doesn't know what to do when that shot's not there. So I don't necessarily think he should not shoot threes, because if you have that ability and you're able to do it um, at an above-average rate, which he has been for stretches, I think you should still explore that part of his game if you're the Suns. But um, I think just simplifying when he when he's shooting um, is going to make a, a big difference for him,
0: for sure. And I guess to end up and wrap it up with Marquise Chris, I'm going to throw him a C grade on my report card. I know with Bender was a C plus, I think Jackson was a B plus, but I think Chris has a C because we didn't see much progression, like you said, we saw the same flash that we saw on a more consistent level, but albeit it was the same things we saw from Chris last season. And really his three, his three point percentage took a big dip. And that's something that's really worsened to me and really kind of shows you that he should be just a, an at the rim kind of guy. And like you mentioned, a pick and pop kind of guy. So I feel like that, that role for him is kind of solidifying compared to Dragon Bender, who should be more of a perimeter player at this point in, point in time while Marquise Chris sort of transitioned inside 15 feet and in. So what's your grade for Marquise Chris?
1: I'm actually going to go lower. I think I'm going to give him a D. I think he's one of the players with the tools and development um, to be a more impactful player. I mean, the thing we have to remember is this team, I think they won two games during this stretch. Yeah,
0: two two and 14, yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's like... You know, when Chris has the tools that he has and has shown the ability to be a productive and effective player, like I mentioned with the plus-minus, he has been a valuable part of the team statistically over different stretches of his career. He's somebody who I was really looking when he got back in rhythm, got started to get consistent minutes again to be a bigger part of winning and competing in games. And he was, I mean, no one was. And it's not anybody's fault specifically. But when you compare him to somebody like Alec Peters, Daniel House, he should be making a bigger impact than those guys, and he really didn't. So I'm going to give him a D.
0: And then one final point, I wanted to add Bender and Chris into this, because I was looking it up with Gerald Borgheda, who had it at the final media day session, and per 100 possessions, the Bender-Chris duo was pretty awful this season. I think they were around a minus 12, or I think it was around minus 20, actually. So do you feel like that, that combo, at least starting, is kind of dead for the hopes and dreams of the Suns, or do you feel like a guy like Luka Doncic could really upgrade those guys and really reignite that hope for the Suns?
1: Yeah, I think if they entered next season starting those two guys on opening night, it would be uh, a failure on the part of the front office to upgrade the talent there.
0: Yeah, for sure. I'm going to move on real quickly to a couple guys I wanted to touch on with you. and I know your guy Daniel House is actually on this list, and it's three G League guys. It's Shaquille Harrison, Alec Pierce, and Daniel House. They all got significant playing time, and they were actually the Suns' leaders in plus-minus over the stretch. Shaquille Harrison was a plus-two Al Pierce was a plus one point eight, and Dana Hoss was a plus one point three. So, three G League guys from the AZ Suns, but they actually proved to be legitimate NBA players of the stretch.
1: Yeah, I think those numbers you gave are average per game um, overall plus minus. Shaq Harrison led. I think that once you do it total, Dudley was second. Oh, okay, um, but he was yeah Harrison. That that really really jumped out to me when I when I looked there like. I don't know. I mean, he really put it together in a way that I wasn't expecting, especially on offense. There were a lot of games. Um, I think one against okay ski he had a bunch of assists and really started to be the primary ball handler as the backup point guard. That was something I didn't really think he was capable of making cross court passes, driving, um, finding open guys and really, you know, finishing better than I thought he was really capable of. So I think, you know, we've kind of talked at that time is at, he, he's at least earned himself a a legitimate shot to make the team next year. Definitely going to get a camp invite. I would push Tyler Uless in that role and, and uh, you know, maybe even be a candidate for a two-way contract next year if if he doesn't make the 15-man.
0: At this point, I imagine they're going to pick up Tyler Uless's option because it's so cheap. I think it's around $1.2 million, but... Do you feel like Shaq Harrison might actually give Euliss a run for his money in Flagstaff in September?
1: I do. I think um, just based on the consistency he was able to show on the defensive end, you have to be excited about his potential because I think he has the skills on offense. I just think you know we need to see him. He needs to get that time competing against NBA talent on offense more often. He's another guy similar to Euliss really that that could benefit from um, adding muscle, adding strength playing against those types of players on a nightly basis and really learning how to how to use his his style and his body most effectively um, going into those defensive numbers though too that I mentioned at the beginning in the database of who defended the opponent's top players most often over this stretch it was actually um, it was well overall actually it was Harrison because they do it by percentage so the percentage of time that Harrison was on the was the best uh, the, the player on the opposite team with the most with the highest offensive real plus minus um, 21% of the time, 4% ahead of Booker and that that really jumped out to me as well just how much of a role he earned on this team as the season wound down.
0: For sure and I guess with Harrison as well I'm glad you brought up his frame because in person he's a very muscular compared to other guards and I think that's something that's really going to help him out especially against other bigger guards in the future and I think he's a guy that should be really excited about for a possibility of a two-way contract but Really quickly, I want to take on Alec Peters and his three-point percentage because he shot 41.7%. Now, he he scored 36 points in the season finale when they were running him about 40 minutes, but 41.7% from three is something that's at least going to keep him on the roster next season, I imagine.
1: I think it, it probably has to just because you really didn't give him enough of an opportunity this year to say that he's a, somebody who should be moved on from. Um, I do wonder about his role. He looked On defense, moving his feet and even, you know, protecting the rim, just getting in the way and and trying to draw charges Um, much more effective, knowing how to to use his what he what are his his very limited strengths on that end to actually be somewhat of an effective player. That really jumped out at me, makes me think that maybe he could be an NBA player. Um, He has that insanely quick release on his jumper um, really good footwork on that shot too. I mean, that's why he got drafted. Um, but he's going to need to round out the rest of his game. And you know, he's the guy when I whenever I've been at practice in, in there before games, whatever. He's he's the one that's always working the hardest. So you know, if it's if there's anybody to bet on, it probably is him. But it, it's an uphill battle, I think too.
0: Yeah, I feel like Pierce could be a guy who consistently hits around thirty five, forty percent, <laughs> and if that's from a fourteen, fifteen man, then it's kind of per roll for him, getting about five, ten minutes a game, but. I want to touch real quickly before we today's podcast on Daniel House because I feel like he was one of the bigger stands for me over this last stretch. He averaged 11.1 points in 30 minutes of action, and he shot 80% from the field. So I'm going to ask you this question. I, I, I know they just took him at 32nd overall last year, but would you decline Davon Reed's option and just sign Daniel House instead?
1: I would rather you know try to keep both and see what you can do. Um, I think especially with how the team's trying to build its roster, how the league is – is kind of coalescing around wings, then having two that can be productive and have that size that both of those guys have is is never a bad thing. I would, you know, for instance, be more than happy to move on from one of Euliss or Harrison in in favor of keeping House or Reed at the end of the bench, um, and it's perfect to me because I'm the guy that harps on rim finishing for this team so much. that When I went in and looked over these last 16 games, that House was. Uh, actually, this isn't even over just the stretch, this is for the full season. House is second on the team. I think it was like Mike James or some some random player that actually didn't play that much was first. But House was second on the team this season, finishing at the rim with 67%. Um, So it's pretty perfect that the guy I talk about the most just happened to fit into the category I slammed the team for the most. So yeah, he's shown so much. I think you can't really uh, help but give him a chance next year.
0: Do you were you kind of surprised, though? I know we were banging the drum for Daniel House in, like, February, but were you surprised that in April they were running the offense through him? Because I never thought I'd say that.
1: Yeah, he was running pick and roll, uh, the crazy alley-oop against the backboard. That he, He's just insanely confident. I don't really know uh, if there was any arguing with him at that point. I feel like if he was like, well, Josh is on the bench, Tyler's on the bench, you're really going to give the ball to someone else, coach? And when he was on the floor, he kind of just took control. I think that's just his style. Not that that's what he'll be playing next to Devin Booker or something like that. Um, I think he can be a really solid 3 and D guy with some of that off the dribble upside. Um, that's the role I really envision for him if he is going to be an impactful NBA player. But it was it was definitely fun to watch.
0: For sure. And I think with Daniel House and really all these G League guys that were called up, it was pretty fun to see them all get a chance. And I think this might be one of the, the few teams that has, like I think, six or seven guys from G League that play this season. I think that might be some sort of record. But I appreciate you guys listening on today's podcast, but Brandon, do you have any final takeaways from today's stock report?
1: No, I think uh, I think we covered it. I think it was uh, maybe not the greatest way to go out for the season, but definitely gives us plenty of intrigue over the next couple of months as they start to add talent and uh, refine the roster to a better better situation going into next year.
0: Yeah, it's going to be a really fun next couple months, guys. Appreciate you listening in. The coaching search, I imagine, is going to be winding down very soon, and we'll be back with you guys actually tomorrow for a special draft episode. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, Everything just makes sense. Go to grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.